Our text is the third and fourth lessons which were read tonight from chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel. And the complete text is on the back inside page of your bulletin. It's Luke's well-known account of the birth of Jesus. I'm going to look at the text under two headings, Caesar and the baby in the first half, and then the second half, the shepherd and the angels. So, the text starts in verse 1, and it tells us that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken of the whole entire Roman world. This enabled the Romans to do one of the things they do best, tax. And so, verse 2 tells us that a census took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Since Judea, which was where the Jewish homeland was, would be in the Syrian province of the empire. And so, there's something very important about this introduction to the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel. And we see it right at the outset. And it's this. It is that Christianity is not mythology that it takes place in open history, and that it makes particular, specific historical claims. This happened under this Caesar. Not the next Caesar, not the previous Caesar. Under this Caesar, at this time, when they took this census, when this governor was over this specific province of the empire. We can pinpoint this time. Christianity is making an open historical claim. Here, we are in the opposite of the realm of mythology. Now, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he was the emperor under whom Jesus of Nazareth was born. Herod, Herod was his local underling. Augustus had declared that he brought peace and justice to the whole world. And in a certain civil sort of way, he did bring order. His famous peace, known as the Pax Romana, is one of the reasons that the Christian faith could spread so easily, so rapidly in its early years. But Augustus, the emperor, he declared... His dead, adoptive father, Julius, he declared Julius divine. And thus Augustus styled himself as a son of God. Luke knows all this. Augustus styles himself a son of God. Augustus was called the benefactor and savior of the world. The king, the lord of all. And in the eastern part of his empire, he was worshipped as a god. The very title, Augustus, meaning majestic and sublime, was bestowed on him by the Roman Senate. And so Luke starts this story in the high world of power politics. He starts with Caesar. Because this is a political gospel and a political act. It's not a partisan act but it's the most deeply political act in the history of the world. This seemingly boring edict, a little piece of Roman administrivia, is going to set off a chain of events that will topple the empire 
and that will transform the world. And so the subtle, or the not-so-subtle point Luke is making here is this. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth rules over the affairs of men, and he directs the heart of kings, of Caesars, as he pleases. And he's directing the affairs here. Remember, according to the prophets, Jesus was to be from, from Nazareth in Galilee, up, up in the north. That's where Joseph and Mary currently live. But Micah chapter 5 says he would be born in Bethlehem. And so this census is the instrument for the fulfillment of an ancient promise. And thus we read in the text in verse 4, Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David. The brutal 90-mile journey for the nine-month pregnant Mary. And we're told that Joseph was from the line of David. And Luke has already told us a little earlier in his gospel that Mary's baby is going to assume the everlasting throne of David. And so, we have them. Mary and Joseph, little, obscure, poor, powerless, hassled. They and their unborn child, they and their God. They are the key actors in this drama, which starts and happens under the nose of Augustus. There's always a narrative in and under the narrative the headline-grabbing narrative of kings. And here it is that this Caesar, this Lord and so-called Son of God, this king, is unawares paving the way for the birth of the true sovereign. He is bringing his own empire to an end. He will not know Jesus, but Herod will try and kill him. And within a few generations, later Caesars will hunt down this baby's followers and kill them. Until finally in the 4th century, the emperor and indeed the empire shall become Christian. At least legally and largely Christian. And the seeds of all of that, of that ironic reversal, are already here in Luke's first move in this text. And so verse 6 tells us that while they were in Bethlehem for the census, the time comes for the baby to be born. And Luke records that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, strips of linen, laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And this situation refers to the houses of the poor where people slept upstairs and there were open feeding areas for the animals downstairs. It is most likely there being no room upstairs that in one of those animal feeding troughs downstairs, Jesus was laid. And thus we have the, the ancient and the probable tradition of field animals, cattle. Donkeys being gathered around the manger, around the feeding trough. This, this will be the royal birthing place of the world's true august 
sovereign. The one who was rich beyond all splendor and for your sakes became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. The one who is being born here is the one who is the eternal son of God. If he isn't, then Christmas is a charming story. Maybe even a religious story. Maybe even an inspiring story. But because of who the baby is, Christmas is the story of the remaking of the world. That, he, that this one being born here is the eternal Son of God, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He now appears wondrously and mysteriously as a baby without a decent place to lay his head. I think this is hardly put better than in the bleak midwinter, which we just heard wonderfully sung, puts it. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when this one comes to reign, when he shall come to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breast full of milk, a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before the ox and ass and camel which adore. He has traversed the infinite distance between God and man for our redemption. So that's Caesar. And that's the baby. I want to look at the shepherds and the angels. In verse 8, it says there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby when this event took place under this Caesar, under Quirinius as the governor of Syria. At this time, there were shepherds. They were watching over their flocks at night. Now, shepherds are often sentimentalized in, in the Christmas story like various other aspects of the story. But shepherds, you know, manger scenes, there's charming shepherds in them. But shepherds were a despised class of people in Israel. Right? Their, their occupation often kept them from fulfilling the ceremonial law in the temple, so they were considered to be unclean. Shepherds could not be and were not to be trusted. They were thought to be thieves. Shepherds could not give legal testimony in court. So God decides they will be just perfect for the first witnesses to the gospel. It's not something you will record if you're Luke. Luke's a physician. He's a historian. He's precise. He's exact. He researches. You don't record this because it ruins the credibility of your story. You only record it if it's true. And so to these people, Shepherds. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord appears and shines forth with the glory of the Lord. And the text says they, it filled them with fear. This, this glory, the glory of the holy God, should not be seen as a sort of Christmassy pyrotechnics. 
But this is the full radiance of God's divine being, which is now veiled in the flesh of Mary's baby. The the heavenly splendor reminds us of who this baby is and where he came from. The baby's veiled glory is made visible in the heavens. And this would create a normal response of fear. The text says the shepherds were terrified. And thus you get the angel's first words, first words in verse 10. Do not be afraid. It's the first lesson of Christmas. Fear not. Humans are fearful creatures. Bundles of fears, real and imagined. Terrors conjured. We're especially fearful when confronted with the glory and splendor of God. When this happens throughout Scripture, people fall down. God tells Moses, no man can see my face and live. We fear the future. We fear death. We fear the unknown. We fear our lack of control. We fear our sense of weakness. The first words of the first proclamation of the gospel made by an angel from heaven are these. Fear not. Because through this humility, this one's birth, Life and death will usher those who trust in him into the fearsome glory of God unafraid. And so the angel tells the shepherds, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for the people. Now this good news, it's the word you often hear translated as gospel. It's very important here because Caesar had announcements of the anniversaries of his birth. And these announcements from the emperor use this same word as good news. These announcements would celebrate the gospel of the emperor's birth. Luke is again ironically reversing the story. A new emperor has been born. And Luke says, this is the good news that will cause joy for all the people. New emperor, new gospel. Caesar can register and he can harass and he can tax the whole world, but he trades finally in fear and coercion. He cannot bring great joy to all the people. So the shepherds are told this baby is going to dispel fear. And replace it with great joy for all. This is the first preaching of the gospel. Done by an angel to these poor despised shepherds. And this angel preacher, he goes to the source of the joy in verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born and he is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the whole force of the gospel in these words, for unto you is born. Today in the town of David has been born to you. This birth is not a private family affair. That's why Luke had to start by describing Caesar Augustus. This child is given to you. 
Two shepherds, to us, to as many as will receive him. Thus Isaiah says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What are you doing with him? What are you doing with this baby? He's been given to you so that you might possess him and he would be yours and you would be his. He's given three titles in this text. Savior. He saves us from our sins. He delivers us from judgment. He liberates us from fear. Secondly, he's called Messiah. Meaning he's the Christ, the promised anointed one, the king who will reign forever. And as such, he is Lord, meaning he is the God of Israel in human flesh. He is not the God of Israel using a mighty man. He's not mightily blessed by the God of Israel. He's not the God of Israel and man in a really close moral union. He is the God of Israel as man. So it's important for us that that we heed the preaching of the angel. For God doesn't just act. He acts here and then he speaks. And his speech tells us the significance of the act. And he tells us in the text what Christmas means. And what it means is that you cannot leave it alone. It calls you to decision. The significance of Christmas is really not um, conjured by a general kind of heartwarming sentimentality. It lies in these titles. Savior, Lord, Messiah. And so the angel gives the shepherds a sign. He tells them, this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's the sign. There may be other babies in Bethlehem that night, but there's only going to be one lying in an animal trough, bundled up in lowliness, anticipating that his broken and bloody body will be wrapped in burial cloths and placed in a tomb. And suddenly, in the text, this great, the angels preaching being done, the choir comes on stage, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appear with the angel praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The angels now, whose whole existence is to praise God in heaven, now praise God who is incarnate in human flesh on earth. And this means peace. Not general peace, but the peace of the gospel. The peace of you And I being reconciled to God through the atoning life and death of this baby. And thus being reconciled to one another. He has stooped down, Jesus has. And his descent is just beginning on Christmas. It terminates when he's torn and shredded by the Roman state on the cross. For your redemption. Caesar provided the Pax Romana. The Roman peace, but the the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who, by the way, was a contemporary of Luke, contemporary of Luke's, Epictetus says this. He says, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he's unable to give peace from passion and grief and envy. He cannot give peace of heart 
for which man yearns even more than outward peace. This baby brings peace on earth because he reconciles us to God. And so the gospel preaching is done. The choir sings and departs. And then the shepherds run in haste. And the text tells us they found the things just as was said. Please don't miss this in the story. The shepherds believed the gospel of the angel. They believed this gospel. Amazement is wonderful. A certain seasonal charm is fine, but it is not why this baby appears. The gospel is calling you to faith, to an informed trust in this unspeakable generosity of God who gives himself here. Imitate the shepherds. Run to this one, the incarnate one in faith. And verse 17 says this, they spread the word. First the angels preached, then the shepherds. You got the gospel from the angels? It was probably pretty impressive. These shepherds come along and start preaching the gospel to you. It's probably, it probably looks pretty common. Looks pretty mean. Looks pretty ordinary. Like all preachers since have looked. Right? Only, only the shepherds got it from the angelic preacher. Everyone else gets it from one of us. But the shepherds spread the word concerning the child. They told not just Mary and Joseph, they told others. They shared the gospel. They believed it, they shared it. They're the first human creatures to do this, these shepherds. Believe this gospel, lest your Christmas be in vain. And then share the good news with others, for this birth is God's gift to the world. Lastly, I want you to notice Mary in the text. We're told about her in verse 19. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke tells us that he investigated everything carefully. And that he also tells us that he consulted the eyewitnesses. So you can bet. Now imagine this scene that Luke has some very long conversations with Mary about these things. And these early chapters of Luke's gospel are certainly shaped by Mary's firsthand ponderings and, and recollections. Some people were amazed when they heard what the shepherds had to say. You know what it says about Mary? She treasured these things up and she pondered them. She meditated on them. She savored them. She sought to unravel them and tease them up. So we're called here to embrace the gospel, to tell it to others, and then meditate on it with wonder. Finally, the text says that when the shepherds left they returned glorifying and praising God. They've now joined that celestial choir which appeared to them. And so we too are called here to add our voices to the shepherds' voices. Believe the gospel. Share the gospel. Ponder the gospel. Sing the gospel. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace toward those on whom his favor rests. Amen.